Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Pedagog. I hope you are doing well and staying safe, my friends. If you don't know already, Pedagog has a site, pedagogpodcast.com. Again, that's pedagogpodcast.com, where you can listen to the episodes, read transcripts, and see more information about our contributors. There's also an index page on the site that's a really great resource if you're interested in a particular topic or pedagogy, and if you'd like to explore or learn more about or hear more about a particular topic, the index page is a great place to go. There's keywords, and next to each keyword, there's a hyperlink to individual episodes. In this episode, I talk with Christy Prinz and Jason Luther about craft, materiality, multimodal pedagogies and practices, and the advantages of incorporating zines, podcasts, and other DIY projects in the writing classroom. This conversation was recorded in December 2019. Kristen Prinz is an assistant professor in rhetoric and composition at Cal Poly Panoma. She helped to open CPP's Library Maker Studio in fall 2019 and coordinates the campus's first year writing program. Her research and teaching span DIY, craft, and multimodal rhetoric and composing, feminist and activist rhetorics, and writing pedagogy and program administration. Her work has appeared in Kairos, Harlot, the Digital Rhetoric Collaborative, and Edited Collection. Jason Luther's research focuses on multimodal counterpublics and DIY participatory media. His work has most recently appeared in Community Literacy Journal, Sound Effects, and the Digital Rhetoric Collaborative. He is Assistant Professor of Writing Arts at Rowan University, where he teaches about self-publishing, digital and multimodal composition, rhetorical theory, and sound writing. Luther is also the co-founder of Syracuse in Print and is currently a public scholar for the New Jersey Council for the Humanities. Chrissy and Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about DIY culture, craft, and materiality. I think perhaps, maybe naturally, when people see or hear the word, the writing classroom, they think about the alphabetic text or privileging, assigning writing, and assessing the alphabetic text. The term composition, of course, has broader appeal and captures the different kinds of meaning-making processes that happen in the writing classroom. I'm thinking about multimodal pedagogies and practices specifically, and the affordances of multimodal pedagogies and practices. Do you mind talking about what it means to embrace a DIY approach to the writing classroom? I got into this, I got interested in um, multimodal composing and then craft and DIY because of the ways in which people expected to be bad at first and that failure could be fun. Um, And so for me, it is in, in part very much about getting students to start embracing this kind of ethic of experimentation and being willing to fail and learning how to enjoy process. Uh, in ways that just were really, really difficult to get students to embrace uh, embrace with alphanumeric text Um, and to bring that spirit of experimentation and and community building that happens around making, you know, students saw that as much more inherently collaborative than they felt like writing could or should be. In my teaching, it is kind of less about the kinds of things students end up making and more about an approach to 
how do we enter into this assignment? How do we enter into working with this new kind of software or this new kind of like physical materiality or materials? It's about helping students uh, develop a sense of self-efficacy, learning how to figure stuff out without having completely detailed step-by-step instructions for how to make a perfect looking thing. And, you know, more about helping students develop this sense of I'm, I can get in there and I can figure it out. And then an important part that is also thinking about these kind of social and ethical dimensions of ultimately what we make, how they're going to circulate, how they're going to um, impact or influence, um, you know, those that it circulates to. Not just, um, you know, you, you can have a DIY approach that you're making zines or you're making, you know, websites just using HTML and CSS or something. But for me, it, it's more about the the ways that I'm asking students to work, the ways that I'm asking to interact with each other, and the ways that I'm asking them to think about what they produce is going to do in the world. For me, one of the most important things is that it, it looks like a space where, you know, you can make your terrible thing. <laughs> um and like point at it and say, you know, here's what I learned while I was making it. And look, it's awful. And people are like excited and laughing and, and supportive of that. Um, and, you know, to get students to do that with essay writing, for example, it would be like a dream. I've never been able to start there. Um, I think getting to DIY and craft first helps to make that make sense. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of what Chrissy said, especially in terms of how that process and those failures draw attention to aspects of composition that aren't typically highlighted through that alphabetic process, whether it's because of schooling, you know, punishment and submission, whatever you want to blame that on. I think um, when students are making something, it calls attention to the labor, the labor practices of it, it calls attention to the whatever is what is available. Uh, including literacies, like what literacies are available to you, uh, sources, what st- texts are available to you, what can, what can you hack, what can you turn something into that isn't designed a certain way to make the thing that you want. Uh, I think all of those things uh, are, are sort of important because I'm trying to really think like the processes are really different depending on the thing. Like mm-hmm. I teach podcasting in a really short class as eight classes uh, in an intro uh, course here at Rowan um, that's taught with three faculty and we break off with 60 students that we break those 60 into 20 and we basically rotate them through eight class periods over the courses of the semester. So I tried to, to, in order to highlight multimodality in that class, I'm trying to teach them how to podcast in, you know, eight class periods is not a lot of time for an intro freshman course. Mm-hmm. So I have to adjust the, the, what I'm asking from them and they have to sort of give me their best shot at audacity, for example, (laughs) and all its complications. And then, but like when I'm making zines and self-publishing, which is a totally different class, a totally different group of students, um, that what's available is really different there as well. Like we do have a copy machine, but I have to use my copy code to get them into it. And um, that came with all sorts of complications this semester. Part of, but part of it too is what am I? What I want to say about DIY that I think is really interesting is that it's a complicated. There's two, two, and I'm simplifying here, but there's two versions of it, right? There's DIY that comes from radical activists, alternative media, and then there's DIY that has come from and maybe even been gentrified by an entrepreneurial, neoliberal version of of DIY that still embraces things like failure, but in the it, that sort of supplements voice for economic survival or profit. 
And I think that's what's making D- what makes DIY so interesting. Like, would you consider an alt-right YouTuber, a, a DIY, having embraced the DIY ethos? I mean, they're making do with what they can, but they exist within this ecosystem of uh, targeted advertising and other sorts of problematic circulation. Um, and so I'm really like, interested in how DIY is not a, the pure term that we often think it is. It sounds like a DIY approach to teaching writing brings a critical awareness to the composing process, as well as other elements like audience. And it seems to me at least that it also calls us to a deeper consideration of ethics. Striving for a DIY composition means trying to call, be attentive to the who benefits from what sort of uh, arrangements and let's see collaborations the nature of the spaces themselves and how you make them um so for example is one's twitter account maintaining that is that a diy composition who's benefiting from taking up that space alone uh, versus what i mean christy's example of learning how to code an html space a domain that you own but are still using a microsoft or apple computer um, you re- requiring uh, data centers that are you know using polluted water, polluting water. Like the are still calling attention in some ways to students to that uh, the circuits of production and and uh, distribution, I think is what DIY can do. Uh, oftentimes, what I encounter with students here is like a real consumptive. I teach a class on fake news or. Uh, digital culture and a lot of times it's a lot a lot of students fall back is to go to this consumptive mode of digital culture and trying to incorporate participation but participation that's thoughtful and ethical that tries to get them the closest to the means of production that they own as possible when writing teachers incorporate zines podcast they're inviting more expansive conversation to happen about culture and communities and text. Some of these genres are are even intentionally counterculture and counter academia or counter the traditional text and maybe genre expectations that circulate and that are often valued in academia. I imagine this really opens up the classroom to some dynamic conversations about production and circulation and distribution and meaning making. What advantages have you noticed about incorporating these genres like zines and inviting DIY conversations in the classroom? For me, um, one of the most interesting things that happened this semester, um, for the first time I got to teach a a multimodal literacy class, kind of a, a sophomore level class, but it's in our new minor in writing studies. And so it's about half English majors and half all other majors. And kind of as a last minute I didn't really think about it and I probably should have, but kind of at the last minute I decided, you know what, it, I'll, I'll have the regular syllabus, right? Like that looks like all the other, other syllabi they get. That'll be, um, you know, policies clearly laid out, et cetera. And I'm going to do a zine version and like a, a mini zine, like it's not going to fit everything. So I, you know, I, I kind of distributed both of them. And we we looked at the zine version first, and then we looked at the kind of traditional version that was a PDF I was projecting on a um, on screen. And the conversation that we ended up having was about how the two different documents made them feel. From my perspective, it led to this really interesting discussion about um, the kind of corporate professionalism we're always encouraging students to develop and how sterile that is. Um, and how um, 
unquestioning of, of capitalist, hierarchical, patriarchal dynamic structures, um, and how, you know, really white um, and middle class a lot of those values are. Had I thought about this for weeks, I could not have planned like a better opening conversation for that class. Um, it was this impulse I had um, that, that worked out really well. You know, really deeply questioning um, what are the kind of cultural values that we have in academia? Who who do those serve? Almost invisible to students, uh, oftentimes ways in which uh, what seems normal in higher education doesn't have to be, um, but is really naturalizing a lot of things that we want to question. But when we do that with the same old materials, it it makes that seem really disingenuous, I think. I mean, we were talking about um, labor a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. I think that each project has a different kind of labor to it. So zines, for example, the labor is into the production of the thing. Like a lot of students struggle with a folio pagination, like how a page will in fours has to, his publication has to be in fours and it has to be arranged in a certain way once it gets folded and mass produced. Or they even just struggle with mass production. Like they don't realize sometimes that color is going to not show up in a, in a uh, photocopy. So all of those struggles like are up, kind of upfront. But then when you, when I when when I teach it, we usually do an event, and when students are giving out and circulating their text, it's that's like the fun, rewarding part. This is class I'm referring to as a self-publishing elective here at Rowan. It's a new class, part of um, uh, publishing and writing for the public uh, concentration that we have, and soon to be minor, we hope. And um, when they do crowdfunding or they're doing, they're looking into the world of authorpreneurship or you know, working uh, in the, the world of basically Amazon self-publishing, they realize very quickly that the labor is in the attention economy and how do you get your work to stand out? And you have to really hustle um, on all these sort of pro-corporate tools, social media, um, Kickstarter, like wherever you are, you have to sort of hustle. <clears throat> and it's a different kind of labor, even though the idea is the same of trying to create your own craft your own space in the world. So I think one of the advantages is trying to make compromises, negotiating. They might come in with this idea, but they realize very quickly that the means of production or the means of circulation are limited or we're going to require a certain amount of labor in order for it to, or capital for it to happen. And so um, they, they, you know, sometimes you have to like, again, like maybe you have all these poems that you like and you want to self-publish them, but like, if you're doing a Kickstarter on it, if you don't have a story or a narrative that people can like grasp right away, then that's going to be a harder sell. And so you can stay true to your form and make it like a hodgepodge of poetry, or you can really think what's the through line and try to to make it as a better pitch. Maybe it's a or maybe it's even uh, better for the uptake at the market at the time, um, which might feel like selling out, but. At the same time, it gets your work in the world. So those kinds of compromises or like students want to make a 26 or 24 page zine, but they don't have the money. (laughs) They have to make a 12 page zine or they have to make it smaller. Those are all economic choices that maybe not are are not simpatico with the, the original idea that they pitched. So in that project, they're constantly revisiting those goals because. It's not like you just have this idea and it voila, it happens through hard work. It's it's often these compromises that are happening and failures, as Christy mentioned, along the way. Yeah, and I, Jason, what you were saying also makes me think, um, I, it feels a lot of the time when I, I talk to students about, um, especially English majors, you know, why why this major, for example. And there is the sense where there are 
like corners of academia that are like clean or there are ways of being in the world that are clean and self-publishing or, you know, going through some kind of sustainable publishing practices for lots of reasons, you know, like objectively better than, um, you know, going some other routes. But, you know, at the end, going, you know, having your hands in those production processes, like you were talking about, Jason, like it, it really, I think, helps students to see everything really is an ethical decision. DIY um, clearly has not and will not save us. It'll get corporatized. <laughs> um, you know, maker fairs will, will spring up all over the place. You know, there are all these like cycles of consumption that get built around things that, um, you know, we would like to think are somehow pure and clean. But the history of DIY and the history of craft like demonstrate that that's that's not real. Um, and I, I think getting really close to some of these production practices writing or co composition classrooms can can make some of those connections between the academic and what's personally important to students uh, really obvious um, and, and material in ways that um, are, are really helpful. So beyond the conversations that this kind of work helps produce, like talking about resistance and privilege, consumerism, capitalism, distribution, and so on, there's also perhaps this kind of teaching that happens around the actual materiality. I imagine some students, if not most, are unfamiliar with some of the texts that they are being asked to make. Can you talk about students' reactions and perceptions? Yeah, I'll say that um, I never taught zines or any sort of DIY. I've been taught first year writing actually in a long time. So I don't, I haven't really tried this with, um, students who are in a compulsory situation, I guess I should say. But at the same time, I'll say every time we enter into a, a kind of wacky project like zine making, students are like having, they're struggling. And I'm like, okay, this is the time where the, the plane crashes and things aren't going to go so well. <laughs> and they struggle and they like, even down to like, oh, I'll be here at the copy machine to help you. And then they get there and I'm like, oh, they, the prototypes they made are not probably the best. And I'm struggling with them with the copier or uh, they went and spent money that they don't have on making copies. We did a, um, an actual book festival this year. It's the largest book festival in the Delaware Valley. Um, we got a table for it. And my class, I had 14 students, all but one had represent, re represented their zines at the table. And 10 of them, of 14, came that day and sold them at the table. Now, I've done zine events before, but only on campus. So this was like a real, so it felt a little bit more risky and going out in the public and um, the students like we I was going to do they were going to they were supposed to create um, sort of like a pre-contract pre-pitch for the zine then the zine and even though they wrote it we just like got so busy with planning the table because the logistics of like well how do we set the pricing like when I've done zine events everyone had their own table but now we're like we're sharing a table so how do we like we really had to think about how do we market ourselves do we want to do bundles how do we make the facilitation of cash easier? Do we take Venmo? Like all these things, it was just like, oh yeah, I didn't think about those things enough as an instructor, but it was probably the most meaningful part of the whole semester for us, just like sitting in a circle, like really thinking these things through. And then when it came to their reflective piece at the end, I mean, a lot of them talked about those struggles, but and they're not going to make another zine. They've said like, no, I'm not going to make issue two, but like I learned a lot from this process. And so and I think what it reminds me of is how powerful it is to, when students are given an opportunity to create their own space 
um, with a little bit of scaffolding, they can do it. I mean, you can't just say, do this thing. I don't care what it is. We'll see what happens. But you can say this, let's create this thing within some of these, some of these parameters, and I'm here to help you be as successful as you can. And they make their own, their own thing. That can, that's a, I think we underestimate how powerful that is. Yes. <laughs> yes. To everything you just said. <laughs> um, for me, like when I first introduced like, okay, we're going to do something that doesn't immediately sound like something you think you should be doing in an English class. I do get a lot of uh, anxiety principally. Um, you know, they're, they're really worried about what the criteria for grading is going to be period. Um, and you know, they haven't made something like this before and they are still so in that mindset of something needing to be highly polished with essays. Like students are, are used, I think, to a pretty, um, like perfunctory process, you know, first draft, best draft, (laughs) um, even with a a highly scaffolded kind of like, you know, invention and, and revision, uh, sections of an assignment, um, there's, I think, a lot of shortcutting that, you know, they've learned how to do, um, which is good and helpful, right? Like who could get through <laughs> um, the first year of college without those shortcuts? You know, to, to put in the the time and the attention at each step as though it's unfamiliar this time because it actually is, I think, kind of surprising. Um, and, you know, my students are overwhelmingly, this is a commuter campus. Most of our students work at, you know, multiple part-time jobs, um, a lot of them are trying to work full time and go to school full time and, you know, have family responsibilities and all of the you know realities about college these days. Yeah, the, these are students with really complicated lives. And so I, I, I understand why they are hesitant to really just, you know, say, I'm going to give this amount of time to focusing on this. One of the things that I think surprises them and surprised me when I started doing was doing it was just that because they had to put in some really focused time, undistracted time in their projects, um, it was a new learning and working space for them. That was a really like surprising bonus. I'd like to talk to you more about this, actually, um, <laughs> because I one thing I'm learning is when, when I was at Syracuse, um, I didn't have a computer lab, but now I'm, I'm privileged enough to teach in a computer lab every class, which is actually, I think, the pedagogies that come with that are really different and I don't think people in our field talk about that at all I mean partially because like who gets a computer lab every time <laughs> but you know it is like a, it is a huge challenge and what I'm learning because my our students have the same kinds of material uh challenges that Christy's describing it at, at um Caltech it's 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 the the t- they need time to work like mm-hmm. I, and so I I've been trying to be more thoughtful in planning my schedule between, let's say, Tuesday and Thursday. There's no homework, but Thursday to Tuesday there might be. But in class, they need that time to work. Mm-hmm. So how do and you know? I I think they'll do homework if it's thoughtfully planned, but they really need time to create and to because what they're worried about in that question, I think, when you throw them a wacky project, is like I don't have time to like not have certainty. Mm-hmm. I need to like things need to be planned, and I need to. Um, be able to schedule my life in such a way that I don't have like this free flex time to hope things work out. And of course, grades are the looming threat in that yeah. situation. Um, so what I, my, most of my response has been trying to assuage their, their fears about the grades and being like, trust me, just trust me. We'll work together. We'll get you through this. But there is this part of unstructured labor that is privileged. 
Yeah, I mean, these projects do often, you know, students will come back and say, I'd spent the most time out of any of my, say, final projects this semester. Like, this is what took the most time. Um, and often it's, you know, time that they were at least partially happy to spend because it's something kind of different from what their other classes are asking from them. I do think a, a part of this kind of teaching necessarily needs to be giving students some structured essentially like studio workshop time in class um, because they they don't have lives that afford, you know, three hours of trial and error on, <laughs> you yeah. know, this, this new thing that I'm working on. I tell them, like, I kind of don't care if it's ugly or broken or doesn't live up to your polished intentions. I'm really interested in how and why you made the decisions you made. Um, and so for me, this comes back to rhetoric really deeply every time. Um, and for me, these projects are really nice places where some of those rhetorical concepts that feel kind of pro forma in essay writing um, or any alphanumeric writing um, becomes much more real and meaningful for students um, because they're, they're focused on audiences that I don't know a whole lot about. And so they have to really explain, you know, the values of like a subculture that I'm unaware of because that's the audience for this thing. And here's why the decisions that I made in composing this are, are smart decisions for that audience. So, you know, and that's, I do get to see like little corners of their lives and, you know, parts of culture that I never would have known anything about otherwise. Um, so, you know, on that front, like it is that kind of like selfish, like I'm learning so much um, along Side you. Thanks, Christy and Jason. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.